Hello and welcome. It's PNN. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. It is Sunday, June the 13th, 2021. Tonight we have two big segments. First, I've got an interview that I'm really happy with and really really glad to be bringing to you guys. I've got Sam Husseini, who has been out in front of all of the media on the SARS-CoV-2 uh, reporting. He, uh, he had a uh, blockbuster article in Salon in the spring of last year. I'm just remarkably prescient. So uh, I've got that. I'll do a little bit of an intro to it before we we go to that. And we've also got Janine Moloff with the Justice Report in this week. She is covering or following the story that I shared with you a few months ago about this crazy sheriff in Pasco County, Florida, who is using a kind of minority report approach on juveniles to harass them in schools as a part of their, you know, it's, it's a sort of like broken windows or whatever. So they're, they're uh, looking for kids who might, you know, use a magic marker on a, on a bathroom door or something. Absolutely terrible stuff going on in Pasco County with the sheriff. So glad that Janine is covering it this week. Uh, Janine has many, many, it was her career, many years, her career was in education. And uh, so she's especially well equipped, equipped to speak to this. I'm especially not equipped to speak just generally today. Apparently I'm tongue tied. Um, but uh, you know what? We are going to just get right into it right now. I'll be right back with a little bit of introduction for my interview with Sam Husseini. So what happened here was uh, I've been fangirling uh, Sam's work for a while and following him closely on Twitter. And this week, at some point, he voiced some frustration with not being able to uh, get any traction on left or right media. You know, Sam is a lefty from way back. He's uh, written for Consortium News and uh, Counterpunch and... Uh, Salon, like I said, and so, you know, he's he's a he's he's pretty dang cool, but he's not getting any traction in lefty media because lefty media has left its damn senses back in the nineteen eighties or seventies or something. It's like you know, I hardly recognize the landscape anymore. But you know, be that as it may, here we are. And uh, Sam came to this story very similar to the way that I came to this story. And so as I, as I 
start the interview, you were going to notice that we're dropping in, uh, you know, just midway because it's just a chat. We're riffing back and forth. But I, uh, he's talking about a friend of his, a, a colleague who gave him a call. Uh, his name is Francis Boyle. Francis Boyle is a law professor, and he actually wrote the implementing legislation for uh, the uh, biological weapons ban in the late 1980s. Now, Boyle calls him up, and he says, have you seen what's going on in in China with this new virus? And this was like in late 2019. and Sam will tell this story, but uh, uh, they had this phone conversation and said, you know, there's a couple of things to look for, and you know, we'll we'll make some determinations after we find a few more facts. Well, the way I came to this story was was through Francis Boyle, I guess, mostly because when let me just preface all this with this. Uh, one of my main entrees into activism in the 80s was disarmament, if you can imagine. You know, disarmament has not been a thing since forever because we had, you know, the the uh, dismantling of the Soviet Union. And supposedly with that, there was the end of the Cold War. And so there wasn't the urgency with regard to nuclear weapons and nuclear war, whereas prior to that in the 80s, you know, we had back when there was only cable television, there was only a couple of channels to watch. You had these these big specials every now and then, like the day after, you know, which was a to be a television depiction of what it would be like to live through quote unquote, lived through a uh, nuclear war. And then there was another one that was put out by BBC called Threads uh, that was a little bit longer in nature and uh, really just depressing stuff. But anyway, you know, my, my background is uh, maybe, maybe some of you guys can relate. Uh, I am a cultural Catholic. Parents made me go to church from time to time depending on which set of parents I was with. Anyway, but um, the, uh, which I hated. And the, uh, the, the, the piece that we came to was um, that I could do the activist stuff with the Catholic Church, which I embraced. Um, and they would let me off the hook for the whole confession, communion bullshit. So <clears throat> that's what I did. And, you know, this is the 80s, and the the two big issues were disarmament and uh, war in Latin America, of course, because uh, nuns and priests were being murdered. So that was something top of mind for the Catholic Church. Anyway, um, it's a college, and I uh, find myself as the... Uh, vice president and then the president of our campus students for peace and justice group and doing political science and participating in, in peace studies and international relations classes and school and followed very carefully what was going on with, uh, 
nuclear test ban treaty and chemical te- chemical weapons and biological weapons ban and ban and uh, everything having to do with how much we were spending on uh, the arms race and so on and so forth. These were the issues that we were very concerned with. So with that background, I am aware of how uh, after the uh, Francis Boyle wrote the implementing uh, legislation, the language for the legislation to ban biological weapons, I'm aware that we completely ignored it. And we pretty much created language to work around it. So now in the United States, uh, we use the language of dual use. And dual use means that Uh, Any kind of offensive biological weapons, uh, research and development flies under the radar because the assumption is, so they say, that uh, they're studying these viruses and other organisms, uh, and they're increasing their lethality and their... um, virulence and their communicability uh, through gain of function uh, because we need to know, because we need to know how bad it'll get so that we can have vaccines as soon as these things emerge. And, you know, so it's interesting that, you know, we have, we had a vaccine like almost immediately after uh, we had the outbreak. Uh, Usually vaccines take years to to research and to bring to market. And this was brought to market in the course of a few months. And the reason for that is, is at the time that Francis Boyle was uh, starting to get alarmed about this virus, he actually at that moment on his desk had a copy of a patent uh, for a vaccine for coronavirus, of course, a coronavirus vaccine. And uh, this was um, this was the uh, British Purebright uh, coronavirus vaccine. So that had already been patented. That was already out there in December when people started to become aware of what was happening in China. Well, let's just hear... Uh, Francis Boyle in his own words on this matter. We do know that, the, you know, if if you read the uh, mainstream news media, they say there there isn't a vaccine. Well, there is. Uh, it's the uh, uh, by the uh, Peerbright Institute uh, in uh, Britain uh, that's tied into their biological warfare program over there. They were behind the uh, hoof and mouth disease outbreak over there that wiped out their uh, cattle herd. Uh, and it leaked out of there. So it was clear they're working out a hoof and mouth uh, uh, biological warfare uh, weapon. Now, you know, one of the interesting things about Francis Boyle, you know, as, as somebody who follows this issue very closely and has for many years, is he's aware of how lab leaks have happened uh, repeatedly throughout history. And you heard him right there talk about how hoof and mouth was a lab leak um, back in the 90s. Something you don't hear people talk about right now is that SARS-1 had had been a lab escape twice 
um, a decade or so ago. So people being very affected by uh, pathogens that that escape, you know, get let loose or or whatever mistakenly from a lab. This is something that happens all uh, a lot. And Francis Boyle is not very enthusiastic or uh, very positive about uh, the prospects of these biosafety lab three and four designations being able to contain these pathogens. It raises that question, you know, the origins of what happened here. But right now I'm just looking at the evidence I have applying Occam's razor and we know that Wuhan BSL-4 was research developing, testing uh, SARS uh, as a biological warfare agent. So it could have been they gave it this DNA uh, uh, genetic engineering enhanced uh, uh, properties, uh, uh, gain of function, uh, which we do here in the West, in the United States all the time. We have uh, all sorts of research that is clearly uh, biowarfare uh, research that has been uh, approved by the National Institutes of Health. It's a joke. They know full well uh, they are approving offensive biological warfare uh, research, and it gets funded by the United States government. So there's just a taste of uh, what Francis Boyle was talking about back in December uh, before any of this stuff really hit. Now, you heard him say there that the U.S. government funds this kind of research. Sam Husseini has a fantastic article. The link will be in the show notes about how much money is spent with, uh, with just one organization called EcoHealth Alliance. How much money has been spent with EcoHealth Alliance in the past, I think it was 10 years, and it's $40 million. It's on the order of $40 million. And I, uh, uh, it's really important to read that. It's really important to understand what he's saying in that article. Uh, link will be in the show notes. Let me tell you just a little bit about Sam Husseini uh, as, by way of introduction. Sam Husseini is a Jordan. Danian Palestinian writer and political activist. He is the communications director at the Institute for Public Accuracy, a DC-based nonprofit group that promotes progressive experts as alternative sources for mainstream media reporters. He formerly worked at the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee at the, at the media watchdog group uh, FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. Husseini has written articles for a variety of publications, including Counterpunch, The Nation, The Washington Post, USA Today, and Salon. And one of the things that I find really interesting about Husseini is that uh, he he graduated with with a math degree, with like math and philosophy degree, and went back to school to uh, get another degree in in the arts, which is freaking fantastic. Um, so if you look him up, you will see his, uh, uh, you will likely see his activist work and you can also find his artwork, which is really good, actually. And understand that I'm also a philosophy person who 
uh, did studio arts and, uh, you know, with a much different take on uh, my visual work. But, you know, it's just it's just one of those things, you know, like uh, I think that people who are lateral thinkers are drawn to both uh, great reporting and uh, and the arts. So without further ado, here is uh, our discussion. I think that the political angle on this in the U.S. started out with the neocons getting way out in front of the story to get their framing around it uh, so that they were kind of setting up China. And to me, that was that felt very suspicious after we had just spent four or five years uh, trying to ignite another Cold War with Russia. All of a sudden, they're hopping to the other foot and finding a reason to start some trouble with China. And so when when Tom Cotton got out in front of all of this and and uh, he was he he kind of owned that space of of this this was a uh an engineered or 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 a lab produced pathogen and he wanted to he wanted to pin that or frame that as coming from china as an aggressive action and i think that you make a really good case that if you want to look for the uh an aggressor using biological weapons, uh, look no further than the United States in 2001 with the anthrax attacks. Yeah, well, the, the anthrax attacks were, were really key, but I, I'd like to, you know, I first heard about the prospect of, uh, about the Wuhan lab, not from Tom Cotton. I first heard about it um, from Francis Boyle uh-huh. one, one, one day in, in late January um, 2020, um, before it was officially, you know, a pandemic, he emailed and said, you know, somebody ought to check if there's a, uh, VSL, um, a lab, uh, in, uh, in Wuhan. And, you know, um, I didn't look. And then the next day I got an email, another email from Francis Boyle, uh, saying bingo. <laughs> there is wow. uh, a BSL four lab. So Fr- Francis Boyle was on the case. Uh, I'm quite certain independently because he just asked the obvious question. Now, now Francis has done this before uh, and raised concerns very early on, um, uh, uh, along with Merrill Nass and um, uh, Barry Crisson, um, uh, an activist uh, who lives near Fort Detrick. Uh, regarding the anthrax attacks um, in 2020, and uh, Francis also raised concerns about U.S. bio um, uh, U.S. labs in West Africa around the um, uh, 2014 Ebola outbreak as well. Um, so th- th- this is uh, you know uh, this is something that he's been vigilant about. Not in terms of, you know, bashing China, obviously, you know, but I think you're right that, you know, Cotton and other, um, you know, diehard militarist interventionists, you know, so-called neocons, um, 
uh, or, or obviously going to use this for their own manipulative ends. And I think it was really unfortunate how the the, the left was sort of unable to parse out the facts um, in terms of distinguishing, you know, what, what you know what the facts were versus how the right was going to use those facts. Um, and I think you got to bear in mind what you know. There, there are different ways that we can parse this out regarding um, uh, Russia Gate because you know a, a large part of so-called progressive media sort of bought into the Russia Gate narrative, right? That you know Putin is the great monster and he colluded with Trump, and that's what's wrong with the world. Um, and that was a mantra in liberal circles from MSNBC and democracy. Now I'd say kind of bought into that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but there was a sector of the U S left, um, you know, gray zone consortium news, um, and others that, that didn't buy into that. And, and, you know, and I played some role in that in terms of not, of being highly skeptical of the Russiagate narrative. But, you know, part of the lesson of Russiagate is just because Trump and companies say something doesn't mean that it's false. And I, I think that, you know, a lot of people started just reflexively thinking that way. Um, and, and unfortunately, with the pandemic, it included people who got Russiagate you know, largely correct, uh, like Gray Zone, like Consortium News, um, so that they just sort of reflexively, you know, called the lab theory a uh, conspiracy theory and so on. I think the nation did that as well. Um, and I think that that was really a disastrous move on the part of those, you know, so-called left outlets. Um, and you know, they, they yeah. So, so uh, I, I, I think that that, that was, um, that, that was really, that was really a disaster. And, and I mean, part of the thing with Russia gate is to, you know, just try to, you, you got to actually do the work, you know, you can't determine, you can't pretend to determine truth simply by negating what your favorite political opponent says. That, that that's that's not journalism um that, that that's that that's that's just reflexive political apparatchikism and i think unfortunately that 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 was kind of rampant and then another aspect of this was just this appeal to authority of oh scientists say blah blah so therefore it's true without saying well who are these scientists you know, I mean, science, you know, it's not, you know, it should not be treated the same way that people, you know, treated, you know, the priesthood, um, you know, as beyond reproach, you know, substituting, you know, white lab coats for black robes. Um, So-called scientists are um, human beings who and they operate in a political economy. And the most obvious example of that is Peter Daszak, um, who was, you know, fairly obvious to me, the ringleader of the 
um, Lancet letter in 2020, uh, February of 2020, um, dismissing lab origin uh, as a conspiracy theory. If you, you know, really looked at that letter, um, you could see that it was a political document, not a scientific one. Uh, it was disguised as a statement of solidarity with the workers in Wuhan, but it, it had this obvious political agenda of saying that um, that, that it was, um, you know, condemning conspiracy theories uh, like uh, like lab origin. Um, and you know, so if you looked at that letter and looked at some of the signers, you should see. You should have seen that there was a political economy going on that Peter Daszak, um, you know, gets money from the U.S. government, and I, at the end of last year, documented that a large part of that is from the Pentagon and from USAID, which is basically the State Department and operates as a sort of, or has operated as a kind of spook, uh, soft power entity. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I think that those were some of the reasons that the left so radically blew, um, blew this story. And it's, you know, it's, you know, I, I mean, I can't say definitively what the origins of, you know, SARS-CoV-2 are, but, um, I think that the left has blown a great deal of its credibility by dismissing the possibility of lab origin and that, um, uh, unless there's a substantial realignment in the left, it's going to help the right a great deal um, because the public now associates this as Tom Cotton's theory, as Donald Trump's theory, when it's not. It's any thinking person who has the slightest bit of knowledge of the um, dangers of uh, bio lab work and the dangers of so-called gain of function work, which should more properly be called the creation of potentially pandem pandemic pathogens. Um, you're you're absolutely right, and I hear in what you're saying too that uh, that that RussiaGate kind of broke and, and Trump kind of broke the left's brain, which I totally agree with the uh um they had a lot of help though the the media was uh, unified and non-stop in pushing uh a, a an insidious kind of propaganda that uh, has uh, just made us all incredibly stupid and uh and uh vulnerable to these appeals to authority this whole you know trust science thing uh, you know, that, it, that is so ignorant of what science is about. Science doesn't trust science. The whole point of science is to uh, try and disprove what science is doing so that you can, you know, have a sense of what's actually happening. Here is an example of how bad things can get when the left isn't doing its job. When, when we don't have enough independent media or enough independence in media in order to have real news and real reporting. And, and uh, you know, the left is very, the, the liberal left is, is very fond of this uh, um, anti-fake news kind of uh, 
approach because that was something that, that Trump did. And what you just said is so true that, that the left is just as resistant to facts as many on the right who are also very resistant to facts. We, we, have, a, we have a crisis of, uh, of, of legitimacy and, and a crisis of reason that I, that I talk about a lot, that no one can agree on what's, uh, what's reasonable and what's rational anymore. And that's a historically, philosophically, that is a big problem when no one can agree what the truth is. Yeah, I, I think it is, it is a gigantic problem. And, um, you know, I mean, there's been an evisceration of where an honest policy debate can take place. Um, there's been a total atrophying of independent journalism. Um, and, you know, it's just ascended to this apparatchikism, um, you know, most obviously with the whole political rubric of MSNBC and basically CNN on one side getting by for years by just simply saying Trump is bad and Fox on the other side getting by with just simply saying Democrats are bad. Um, they, in effect, um, imprisoned the voters into these two camps on that basis. It's a hate-fueled system. You don't vote for Biden. You vote against Trump and vice versa to large part. Um and uh, then the sort of left in of you know beyond that breaks down along quasi sectarian lines, um, just you know fulfilling you know the, the 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 immediate political agenda that each strand is associated with, um, and um, I think that that's been one of the main failures that led us to this point. Um, another main failure is um, the entire rubric of so-called social media, what we should actually call big tech of Twitter and Facebook and so on, that can deplatform, demonetize, silence um, people and viewpoints at will, um, sometimes in concert with government or quasi-government entities, um, so that we're sort of denied. First Amendment rights on these platforms, but they, you know, in effect collude with um, with with governmental authority. Um, and then you had, you know, the, the legal failure in terms of prohibition on uh, uh, biological weapons. And I should say, I mean, part of the mantra is, you know, people going off on saying, you know, oh, th th this crazy idea that it's a bioweapon. People are still saying that now, even now people, you know, now that we can talk about a lab leak in part because CIA spooks are leaking information and the Biden administration is, you know, finding talking about it seemingly useful, um, you know, sort of probably to leverage it against China the same way that Trump seemed to be doing. Uh, um we're still seeing this mantra of, you know, but it's crazy to talk about bioweapons. And I'm like, well, what's a bioweapon? You know, um, a, a bioweapon is anything that comes out of a bio lab that might hurt, hurt people or crops or other things. Um, so, 
you know, you don't have to christen something a bioweapon to call it. Just if it's harmful, you know, it doesn't have to be anthrax to be a bioweapon. Um, if if it's damaging and it came out of a biolab, you can, you know, it, you can certainly look at it as a as a bioweapon, whether or not it's intentional release or not. Right. If you, if you have a arms depot in the middle of a city and it blows up, you're responsible. Um, that, that, that's a weapon going awry. If, you know, Tony Soprano picks up, you know, a staple gun and assaults somebody with a staple gun, he's using it as a weapon, whether or not it was designed that way. Um, so I think that part of what's being obscured is the notion of weapons and the way that the U.S. government has led the way and other governments have in effect followed in trying to effectively get around this uh, the, the bioweapons convention by saying, oh, we're not producing a bioweapon here. We're just looking to uh, see, to, to, to make you know pathogens more deadly so that we can figure out how to combat against them if the bad terrorists or nature throw them at us, well, you know, that, 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 that's just taking U.S. government stated goals as actual goals. And it should be an elementary notion that that is a very fallacious thing to do. The, the U.S. says that it invaded Iraq to, you know, get rid of weapons of mass destruction and promote democracy. And if you believe that that was the actual reason for the Iraq invasion, then you really shouldn't be doing political work. Uh, well said. Uh, and the uh, bioweapons have been developed and used uh, all through history. It, this, this isn't black swans. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the U.S., uh, in 2019, Fort Detrick, was uh, the CDC shut down Fort Detrick for a short time for a, a number of, of violations. And of course, Fort Detrick is where the uh, anthrax, the weaponized anthrax was uh, traced to in, in, the, uh, in 2001 that, that killed five people. And we have no way to know what was going on in Fort Detrick that would have uh, led to the CDC shutting it down and, and shutting it down right before uh, all of this stuff started happening with, with COVID. And so I think that's a big question mark. It is for me, at least. That's something I, I you know, have, have, have stuck a pin in and I'm wondering if that's ever going to come up again. I agree that it, needs to be scrutinized, and I, I probably haven't scrutinized that part of the puzzle sufficiently. Um, it's my understanding the anthrax attacks, I, I, I don't know if we need to go into them or if you've done so in a past show. I don't think that it's definitive that anthrax came out of Fort Detrick. You know, it, I, I think that several U.S. government and potentially U.S. government allied labs might have had those strains of anthrax and therefore been responsible. But, you know, just to, to, you know, encapsulate that story, because I think it's highly relevant 
Um, and it's the Ames so stream, which would have been, and Ames is actually for Ames, Iowa, right? I believe so. Um, Where there's another I, I, BSL. Right. Yeah. Right, right. I, I'm, I'm not sure about the name in that respect, but, um, you know, it, it, the, I mean, the, the, the timing of them was incredibly significant. It started a week after 9 11. It turned, you know, 9 11 from a, you know, distinct attack to a widespread panic across the country. Some of the targets were media outlets and lawmakers, um, some of whom were seeming to be the most resistant to the Bush administration's agenda at the time of ramming through the Patriot Act and ramping up the perpetual wars that we are still in and have largely molded U.S. society over the last several decades. Um, so, um, the, you know, they were they were a false flag attack, right? They, they, they came through the mail with notes like, you know, praise to Allah, death to America, death to Israel, obviously being portrayed as coming from nefarious Arabs and Muslims. Lots of media outlets pointed to Saddam Hussein, to Al-Qaeda. Um, you had media luminaries uh, like Andrew Sullivan say that the Rubicon has been crossed, and now we have to talk about using nuclear weapons potentially against Iraq. Um, th this was the mindset that those attacks helped foment, um, and I think that that was predictable on the part of whoever whoever did it. The FBI tried to pin this on three individuals in succession. They, one of them sued the FBI and won a large uh, judgment. They finally pinned it on a guy, Bruce Ivins, who allegedly committed suicide. Um, and therefore, there was never a trial. Um, then FBI head Robert Mueller was brought before the Senate in 2008, and Patrick Leahy, who was one of the targets, told Mueller that he didn't buy it. He didn't buy the FBI story that it was all one guy who did all of these attacks, and there has never been a real accounting for it. All we know is that it's came out of a U.S. or U.S. allied government lab. And it's deranged that the Congress never, you know, got to the bottom of what was an attack on itself, um, far, far more significant, I would, I would argue, than the in incident early this year in January 6th. Um, and, um, and media and so on were more likely to, to cover it up uh, than to really examine um, what, what happened, um, especially given the massive ramifications for the whole society. And it came at a critical time. Uh, you know, and as a matter of fact, uh, you know, part of the reason I, I reached out to you is that I've been noticing a lot more, the story getting a lot more traction in important left uh, uh, publications and vehicles. And one uh, was a, the Nathan J. Robinson piece in, uh, in Current Affairs. And he had, like, he had this wonderful quote, and he has such a great way with words. I love his writing. Um, but, and I can't find where I wrote it down, but he said that, you know, if this turns out that, uh, that uh, 
COVID-19 came out of a lab in, in whatever way, shape, or form, this is going to dwarf Chernobyl in terms of, you know, a, a disaster that has uh, – this disaster will have global uh, ramifications, already has, with 3 million dead. And, you know, it, it's going to make Chernobyl look like a, like a little blip. You know, like, like, oh, there was that little thing that happened, and now there is this huge thing that happened. I feel like we're in a place in history that is uh, is just exploding in every direction with with uh, significance and 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 importance. Yeah, I, I think that you know, biological weapons constitute a really under appreciated, you know, existential threat. Um, you know, uh, I mean, in 2011, you had two scientists funded by the NIH, one in the Netherlands and one in the University of Wisconsin, who made the avian flu, which is highly deadly, but not terribly transmissible, more transmissible. Um, I've seen estimates uh, that if that got out, we're talking about billions with a B dead. Um, so the, um, the I, I, I think that COVID has been a tremendous um, uh, disaster, but I, I think that the the threats in the offing are even greater and requ- therefore require far more um, scrutiny um, to to this to this area. Another aspect of all of this is has been the, the silence of so many scientists. Um, you know, there were these well-organized people who obviously had a conflict of interest, like Peter Daszak, who helped fund the lab in Wuhan, um, and then got on both the Lancet and WHO committees, alleging to try to find the origin continuously dismissed the possibility of lab origin, including on Democracy Now!, where he was brought on and, you know, just completely propagandized, and they bought the story hook, line, and sinker. Um, But you um, also had, you know, a lot of scientists who had been warning about the potential of um, a pandemic coming out of a lab who, when this pandemic hit, were totally silent. Uh, for example, Mark Lipsitch at Harvard, um, you know, completely silent. I reached out to him. I reached out to other people. Um, I mean, it was kind of interesting because their not getting back to me was sort of a confirmation <laughs> for mm-hmm. me that there was a story here. Right? I, I mean, they, he didn't email back and say, oh, no, Sam, this is bullshit. Uh, it couldn't have come out of a lab. He didn't say that. He didn't say anything. Um, you know, on at least one news conference last year, he just he was asked about origin and just said, "No, we, we got to deal with the pandemic itself, and we can't deal with the origins just now. It's not the right time, whatever." Um, uh, you know, I don't know if it's funding concerns that suddenly makes these people tongue tired, or um, uh, or uh, you know, you know, just the political wins. Uh, I mean, this was, you know, part of it was this was clearly kind of used to get rid of Trump. And now that Trump is gone, 
you see the Biden administration pick up the possibility of lab origin. I don't, you know, I mean, I certainly don't trust any inquiry by U.S. so-called intelligence agencies. Um, uh, a lot of the stories we're seeing about this now are based on anonymous leaks, you know, that uh, workers in Wuhan, um, you know, were, uh, uh, were, were sick right before the pandemic started with, with COVID-like symptoms and so on. I don't think that that's, you know, that's not evidence. As Richard Ebright has been saying, you know, basically all of the evidence, there's been fundamentally no new evidence in the last year. The evidence that this was potentially of lab origin has been there for a year or more. Um, there's been bits and pieces, uh, but but by by and large, uh, it's just simply been a matter of some people coming around um, mm -hmm. and reexamining things. But it's also been driven, I think, by a changed political landscape that makes this possibility more um, uh, convenient uh, for some of the political establishment. I, I think part kind of kind of what you have is. A bit of a spy versus spy thing, right? You, you have then, you know, so-called neocons who just want to use this to bash China, and then you sort of have the pro-bio warfare uh, U.S. government-funded people like Dazek, and I think that they're sort of doing a dance to see how they can, you know, cut a mutual deal so that they can keep the U.S. biological weapons program, in effect, going uh, while still, you know, leveraging all of this against China. Um, uh, and I don't think either of those camps has a genuine interest in the truth. And, the, you know, um, I mean, there might be some movement more recently. I, I still think it's severely lacking, you know, because the left and you know sort of global public opinion the, the whole the elephant in the room here i mean in a rational world lab origin would have been discussed early and prominently and would have led to a mass global movement and revolt against the possibility of this dangerous lab work that's right? what i'm that's talking about that's what should have happened yep. that's the obvious thing that should have happened and didn't happen because you had a series of failures, or if you want to really scrutinize this, successes on the part of the scientific establishment, on the part of big media, on the part of big tech, on the part of a corrupt legal profession um, and geopolitical system. You know, that, 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 that's what should have happened. All of these groups, in effect, helped push for it not to happen, and the left was either complicit or um, acquiescent in in this tragic uh, turn of events. We either succumb to this uh, spy versus spy, and, and and we you know just choose what authority we're going to allow ourselves to have appeal from, uh, or, or or we fight, and you know. God bless you for, you know, there, there's so few ways for the left to communicate our 
ideas and uh, these the, and and this information. You know, on on the upside, I, I mean, there were people who you know led me in my journalism, and I think have done amazing work that I think can be mentioned. Um, Organic Consumer uh, Association um, has done remarkable work. Um, Dr. Meryl Nass um, uh, runs the Anthrax vaccine blog and did remarkable work. She was the first person to point out, um, to my knowledge, um, that um, the um, uh, the, the Nature Medicine article um, in March of 2020 that purported to prove that it didn't come out of the lab was just a scientifically and logically fallacious um, uh, piece of writing. Um, and that was basically confirmed to me by Richard Ebright, and that formed the, you know, a large part of the basis for my first piece in Salon on all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that there are people who have really done serious work. There are whole clusters of people who uh, are on Twitter who I don't even Breaking in just to say that if you're on Twitter and you want to find more information, look for the hashtag drastic uh, and you will find uh, a lot of virologists and scientists engaging in this particular conversation. Back to the show. Know who they are. Uh, you know, large numbers of them are anonymous. Um, um, so I, I think that there are definitely strands of people who have done serious work. Well, the um, uh, the uh, Center for Food Safety is suing the NIH um, for uh, funds. Kimbrell, uh, 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 who was on Ralph Nader's radio show in June of 20. 20 um, with some really great information has been out there um, and, and there are others. I'm not listing everybody here, but I'm just saying that, that there have been others. It's been interesting for me because I, I know very little about the whole GMO thing, mm-hmm. um, but it's largely been people who have been skeptical of GMOs who, you know, sort of were out of the gate on this issue because I think they realize how corrupted um, the so-called life sciences can be. Um, so they were really, really, you know, they, they were really on the ball. Yeah, the group U.S. Right to Know, a transparency group, they FOIA'd and got um, a bunch of the emails that confirmed what I and others suspected, that Peter Daszak, um, who funded the lab in Wuhan, um, uh, you know, was basically organized and orchestrated the Lancet letter, which started the um, the whole, you know, it's a conspiracy mantra. Um, so that there there have been meaningful, you know, groups. It's just that there's no there's no real media outlet mm-hmm. that, that 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 sort of galvanizes all of them. So I'm, you know, I've been talking to you and a couple of other podcasters and so on. Um, but you know, um, it, it's been it's been a real it's been a real problem um, in, in terms of, you know, how to get information out that way. Well, and the uh, the uh, the baddies, the bad guys, uh, know, they know that it left media that they have to go after. So in November of 
what was it? it was November 2016 on Thanksgiving Day was when the Washington Post dropped that story about Proper Not, which was blacklisting left media. Now we have a, a group on Twitter that has been empowered by by the Twitter gods with a, a guy named C. Boozy, or he goes by C. Boozy, who is now uh, developing a means to blacklist individuals on Twitter. So, you know, when you say that, that there are clusters of people on Twitter, it's it's important to remember that we've had to be very careful not to use certain words, especially if you're on YouTube, you know, or on Absolutely. Facebook. You know, you you can't say ivermectin. You can't say uh, uh, you, you will get flagged for other kinds of combinations of of uh, words. You know, so it people have Absolutely. lost their platforms over it. Absolutely, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. And I mean, I, I got to say, I, to some extent, I sub you know I succumb to this. I mean, you know, in you know in March of 2020, I you know had significant chunks of my of the story and but i wasn't tweeting about it because i figured i'd get deplatformed if i did mm. uh, i was trying to get interviews i was trying to get published different places um and um uh, you know um you know i, I didn't want to cease to be able to function altogether so it was a real problem so i, I think that the entire place of big tech you know, it, it's not tolerable. You can't depend on, you know, the the, the current rubric um, uh, to be providing information that you need. Uh, there, there needs to be, you know, another system, some kind of open source or some kind of um, uh, genuine, you know, common carrier type platform uh, that, you know, sort of acts like an ideal like post office for exchanging information and not um, not something that's obviously going to, you know, be either completely silence or, you know, deplatform or marginalize using their secret algorithms mm-hmm. uh, in a certain information. Well, we're doing our best and, uh, you know, we're, we're sticking together, watching each other on Twitter, trying to have each other's backs. Uh, your article in Salon and it's so early on in 2020 was an absolute miracle. I mean, it's, it's, I will put it, I'll put a link in the show notes along with some other reading materials too for the listeners. But, you know, to get in so early and to get that piece in Salon is you got in this window where it was it was cool to to talk about these issues. And then and then that window closed. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I've been writing for Independent Science News, which I should also plug. They've done remarkable work. They've put together uh, a major hypothesis that it came out of the uh, SARS-CoV-2 or an antecedent of it came out of a mine in China and was collected by the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, they've been publishing my stuff and continuing to write for them. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I've been unable to publish in left and, or and mainstream outlets um, since then, with the exception of independent science news. And that independent science news has your amazing article, Peter Dazak's Eco Health Alliance has hidden almost 
40 million in Pentagon funding and militarized pandemic science. This is this is a key article. This is Keystone that uh, you know has all of the uh, facts and numbers, which. I do some paralegal work and government contracting, and I checked all these numbers, and they are spot on. I mean, you you got well, everything well, that was out there. What was really funny, what's been funny about that article is that you know I wrote it, I finalized it in December uh, with uh, Jonathan and Allison, the folks who run independent science, and just in the last month or so, it's gotten, you know, as, as the Biden administration has said did happen, uh, it's gotten picked up mostly by right wing circles. And they are using the numbers, but they're not linking to the article because they don't like the narrative mm-hmm. of scrutinizing the military aspects of this. So, you know, it's, it's you know, again, this sort of deranged sectarian uh, media structure that we have that just can't deal in the realm of fact. And that was Sam Husseini. Check out the show notes. I've got all the information for him, links to his all-important story in Salon, plus the uh, other story in Independent Science News. Don't miss that. All kinds of other citations, super important stuff, things you want in the show notes. Check it out. We'll be right back. And we're here with Janine Maloff this week. She is following up on a story that we talked about a few months ago with the sheriff in Pasco County uh, going after kids who have low grades. And also, you would imagine uh, uh, there's some other reasoning in there, but this is a a very interesting story. I'm so glad you're picking it up. Janine, what have you learned? So this week... We're going to talk, as Burke said, about the Pasco County Sheriff in Florida and how his department has been harassing children with low grades, thinking that they're somehow pre-criminals or something. So this story caught my eye, not just as a journalist, but as a teacher. Before I began this journey into journalism, both print and broadcast, I was an educator, specifically public schools for 30 years. I'm grateful for the time I spent in the schools. It was a privilege that I still cherish. I worked with many gifted teachers in a challenging setting, yet there were times when I witnessed students of color being handcuffed by police, some as young as 12. Yes, these were troubled students, but instead of handcuffing and terrorizing them, we should have been providing counseling and help after all. These were children. I remember arguments I had with the SRO, which is an acronym for the school resource officer, who is, at the end of the day, still a police officer, demanding that they stop this abuse. There were times when I risked arrest myself as I argued with the police. My arguments were and still remain that this is child abuse, but it fell on deaf ears. Keep in mind, the students being handcuffed weren't star athletes or high-scoring students on the mandated state test. They were, more often than not, special education students who dragged the test scores of the entire school and the district down through no fault of their own, though. Keep in mind, the students responsible 
for disasters like Columbine were not detained by school resource officers. So any excuses that police are needed in schools to prevent mass shootings are bogus. Now, this story, the slant for the story is about psychological subjugation and educational deprivation of unwanted students. I'm going to say it again. This story is about the psych, the premeditated, I'll add to it. This story is about the premeditated psychological subjugation and consequent educational deprivation of unwanted students. I'm speaking now as a teacher. When I appealed to state education officials in my home state of Missouri, my reports again fell on deaf ears. So when I read about the Pasco County Sheriff, I had to report on this egregious act of what can only be called child abuse, psychological subjugation, and educational deprivation. Uh, oh, excuse me. This won't be my only report on this subject. Consider this a first installment as we will talk about this from time, time and time again. So as Burke said, she had done an earlier story. This is a story of the Pasco County Sheriff. His authorized abuse of school kids, his connections to not only Donald Trump, but to Marco Rubio, and especially to incumbent U.S. Senator Marco Rubio, as well as, as um, the junior senator as well. And the entire idea of police invading our kids' schools. Keep in mind, we don't have money for enough qualified teachers. We don't have money for schools to have a full-time qualified social worker. We don't have money for full-time counselors and other specialists, but we have money for a police officer to frisk our kids daily. So the story started out from the Tampa Bay Times. <coughs> I apologize for my voice today. Asthma is so much fun. And this was a story initially, and I'm sure Brooke covered, that uh, first popped up in December of 2020 um, by Kathleen McGrory and Neil Betty. And the headline was, The Man Behind the Machine, Pasco Sheriff Chris Nako built a controversial data-driven approach to policing. He also built a wide circle of powerful friends who don't question his tactics. And so basically what happens, the Tampa Bay Times did really not only one expose, they did several, and they really investigated in depth. And this was Nako uh, basically telling the reporter, he was on, once asked under oath, the article starts, how he had landed two high-level posts in state government, and Nako's uh, response was, quote, it was the connections that I had made. I mean, you didn't have to, like, go and interview along with, uh, I'm sorry, it was the connections that I had made. So he was asked by an attorney, you didn't have to go and interview with 100 other people to get the job or anything. And Nako's response was, quote, no ma'am, end quote. And later that month, Nako told a reporter, quote, I'm very blessed to have friends that are in high, place, high offices, end quote. And so Chris Nako, along with his wife, do have friends in high places in the GOP. Um, he has been twice elected sheriff. And his wife is one of the state's most prominent Republican fundraisers. Collectively, between Nako and his wife, Bridget, their ties reach the highest levels of government, including uh, then-President Donald Trump's administration. So there was a Tampa Bay 
Times investigation back in September, and they talked about how Naco, Sheriff Naco had instituted this intelligence program that, quote, uses an algorithm to identify people who might break the law based on their criminal histories and social networks. And again, that was reported by the Tampa Bay, um, Tampa Bay Times. It goes on to say the agency sends deputies to the homes of these people. Doesn't matter, even if there's no evidence of a crime, these, these deputies come, they invade people's homes, um, and former deputies, according to this expose, told the Times that they had been ordered to, quote, make targets' lives miserable, end quote. So, you know, again, keep in mind, illegally, illegally harassing and abusing adults is bad enough. But then they began abusing kids. So basically, Sheriff Nako's office keeps, quote, a list of school children who might fall into a life of crime, uh, end quote. And again, that's from the Tampa Bay Times. And it's built with data that includes grades, child welfare records, and all of that. And that's according to what the agency documents um, had. And so the department says the list has basically about 400 kids at the time, but quote, is only used by school resource officers to provide support and mentorship, end quote. Keep in mind, the, the paper also said that the parents of these children, as well as the kids, are not aware of this designation. Now, this is really very troubling. Police officers, especially school resource officers, and I dealt with them quite a bit during my time, they love to uh, brag about how they're counselors and they mentor, except that they're not. At the end of the day, they're still police officers. They are a military force. They are not trained counselors. They are not trained teachers. They're not trained anything except in the use of force. And, they sh and in my opinion, as an educator, they should not be in our schools. National experts that were reported, they reviewed the, report, the programs for the Times, and these national experts uh, labeled these programs, quote, morally repugnant, and quote, everything that's wrong about policing, end quote. There were some civil liberties groups, including the ACLU of Florida, the Institute for Justice and the Southern Poverty Law Center that were considering lawsuits, as well as public advocacy campaigns. I would say they need to stop considering and they need to actually institute the lawsuits, all right? Um, there was reported tens of thousands of people signing petitions demanding the school district stop sharing the sensitive data, the sensitive student data with the sheriff's office, but the leaders in Pasco County, which is Republican controlled and the state house won't respond. Okay. And you have to understand something. Student records are protected by a federal law called FERPA which was instituted at the national level in 1974. It is illegal for any school system to share this type of data, whether it's grades, test scores, disciplinary records, whatever, um, with, other, with outsiders without either the legal parent or guardian's written permission, or if the kid is no longer a minor without their permission. It is illegal. School districts can actually lose incredible amounts of money if they violate this law. That's the punishment. 
Okay, and yet no such thing has happened. So, and keep in mind, this was during the Trump administration, and, you know, basically we had a moron in charge of the educational department who had no credential for the position she held. So this article goes on and it gives, you know, a little bit of a bio about Chris Nacko because he seems to be the, the figurehead behind this. Now, they're trying to make it look like this is all Nacko. I don't buy that, okay? Nacko is the water boy for more powerful people, I suspect. So Nacko became, Chris Nacko became Pasco Sheriff at the age of 35. He only had eight years of law enforcement experience. Uh, he decided he was going to redesign policing in that department. So he instituted what they call an intelligence arm. He hired retired military officers, and he gave deputies this, uh, basically this rallying cry, we quote, we fight as one, end quote. I, I don't know, well, who are they fighting? Naughty kindergartners that wanted to leave the, the timeout chair? What? I don't know. But this apparently these officers pride themselves in bullying and abusing children. So the sheriff's office also is very proud of the fact they, you know, they had early adoption of body camera spine, and they claim that they work to address mental health. They also claim that they have, quote, a cutting-edge research institute that proves this forward-thinking attitude. But you have to remember something. At the end of the day, once again, these police officers are not qualified counselors. They're not qualified therapists. They're police officers. So it doesn't matter what Sheriff Nako says about working with some research institute. What cutting-edge research institute? What mental health concerns are they addressing? Have they employed any, any legitimate mental health professionals to supervise these officers? These are all questions that have not been asked or answered. So the department basically has had some conflict. There were deputies that did resist the changes, and they were pushed out. There have been multiple lawsuits. Um, one lawsuit basically said that agency leaders were, quote, intoxicated with power and furthermore willing to, quote, physically abuse, intimidate, incarcerate, extort, and defame in order to ensure their absolute control, end quote. And, of course, Sheriff Nacko and his office have denied the claims. So why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because it gives you context, all right? In such a political climate where you have a sheriff ruling with an iron fist that insists that he can intervene anywhere, including in our children's schools, then you have a culture that is primed for abuse, okay? Uh, the sheriff's office did not respond to the Times reporting on the, these dubious intelligence programs. They didn't answer any of the questions. Instead, they provided a copy of his biography and a 53-page report on alleged innovations that Sheriff, Pop, that Sheriff uh, Nako instituted, okay? Uh, and this is according to PascoSheriff.com. There are nine pages that are talking about intelligence programs. Seven of those pages highlight the agency's partnership with schools and their alleged programs for kids. Um, now, here's the thing. I am a teacher with over 30 years experience. A sheriff, a police department, they are not qualified to have, part, to have programs for kids. They just aren't. 
you know, in the schools, whenever you institute a new program, you have to get parental permission. All right. So, you know, once again, I'm really very concerned with this, this creeping overreach because you don't know who these police officers are. Not really. Their records are kept from our public eyes. Keep in mind, teachers' records, their their credentials, all of that are for any person to see at the at the state level of the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Police departments do not offer that same level of transparency. In essence, when these police officers are dealing with your children, you don't know who these officers are that are dealing with your children, of the power to hurt your children. So now, Sheriff Nako provided, did provide a full statement in retaliation. Um, his office said they won't back down from their intelligence strategies. They, his office accused the Tampa Bay Times of yellow journalism and bias against law enforcement, which I find laughable. It's like, sorry, Sheriff, many of us in journalism, in addition to those of us who are real teachers, object to your systematized child abuse authorized by your office. And we're going to get to this, okay, because they're harassing these children. All right. So, again, to give you more context, Sheriff Nako has a lot of connections. First of all, he served as a top aide to Marco Rubio, who is now Florida's senior U.S. senator. And he served with him, it says here, when I think Rubio was the Speaker of the House in Florida. His wife uh, spearheaded fundraising for Rick Scott, who's the junior U.S. Senator. In fact, his wife's been the finance, finance director for one of the biggest and most important lobbying and public relations firms in the country. Her boss, her, me, her boss is Brian Ballard, and Ballard has a very long relationship with President Trump. In 2018, Politico called Ballard, quote, the most powerful lobbyist in Trump's Washington. Again, this is giving context because this shows that Chris Nacco and his wife with these connections are essentially untouchable. Parents can't protect their children. And this is where we really need to start asking questions. Why are the police in our schools? So we're going to, you know, skip ahead here. We, we know that Nacco... Um, basically at eight years of experience. Um, then he followed his future wife back to her home state, which was Florida. Uh, we go on a little bit here. His wife, Bridget, helped him get into politics, basically two months before the OFAR election. Um, Chris Nacco became the field director for Republican George W. Bush's campaign in Broward County. Nacco spent the next four years as an aide, as I said before, in the Florida House of Representatives, and he worked his way up and he eventually became Deputy Chief of Staff for Marco Rubio, who was House Speaker at the time. Nacco's immediate supervisor then was a man named Richard Corcoran, um, and Corcoran is now, get this, the State Education Commissioner. Okay? Now, keep in mind, a state education commissioner should be somebody who actually is qualified in the field of education, not a political operative. But you see how all these connections have allowed these people to get into positions for which they are not qualified and positions that affect our children. So Richard Corcoran now is state education commissioner. It's the same state education commissioner that is allowing the police department in Pasco County to not only 
get into your child's records, your child's confidential records, to use those records to intimidate and harass these children. You see how this is fitting together? So let's skip ahead to see, you know, what's happening here. It goes further. Corcoran, before he became state ed commissioner, became Speaker of the House eventually. And he appointed not go to a high-profile board. And that was a board that was supposed to propose updates to the Florida State Constitution. NACO used that to introduce Marcy's Law, which is a victim's rights measure, but it includes a provision that allows police agencies, including NACO's police agency, to withhold the names of officers who use force. So again, it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. NACO was named to a 32-member panel that advises the Secretary of Homeland Security on federal policy, which is very troubling. He was at a campaign rally just this past July 30th when Trump was campaigning in 2020. He was one of two other speakers there. Okay, so he's in deep. You cannot separate and his wife, Bridget, from Donald Trump. You cannot separate the state, the Florida State Department. I'm sorry. You cannot separate the Florida State Education Commissioner, Corcoran, from Trump. Okay, you get what's happening here. You cannot separate Trump's abuses from NACO. They are interchangeable. And this is significant. It's bad enough what we do to, to adults, but children are supposed to be protected. So let's go to this. Okay. So NACO has used this intelligent operation, and he's used it to basically harass students that are low performers. Okay. There were two academics um, that said that the sheriff's office, uh, basically, let me back up here, okay. So when details of how the sheriff's office is using, is accessing this confidential information on your child and then using it to harass your child, when that became public, two academics um, who the sheriff's office claimed helped develop the program, one said they had no responsibility for it. Several other academics compared the tactics to harassment, child abuse, and policing that could be expected under an authoritarian regime. State and county leaders, and basically all Republicans, wouldn't say anything about the program. So, you know, Marco Rubio, who is a presidential contender for the GOP and who is running for re-election now, where is Marco? Didn't he help create this monster? And yet there's dead silence. And so let's talk about what this is really doing. The sheriff's office, as I said before, is using confidential data, quote, to identify kids at risk of becoming future criminals. Okay. And the superintendent of Pasco County Schools is a man named Kurt Browning. And he said that Sheriff Naco is a great partner. Now, keep in mind, let's talk for a minute about another, another character in this scheme. The superintendent of Pasco County Schools, Kurt Browning, is utterly unqualified for the position he holds. You know, in most states, including my home state of Missouri, school superintendents are generally people who, one, have a background in education as a teacher and as an educational, 
an educational administrator, and they almost always have PhDs in those fields. They are not business people. They are not attorneys. They are people qualified to actually assess school systems. Kurt Browning does not have those credentials, and he should not be a school superintendent. But apparently in Pasco County, they elect their school superintendent through a vote, which means that qualified candidates may or may not be considered. Think about this. As Kurt Browning, who is a Pasco County school superintendent, is unqualified for the position he has, knows nothing about education, and he's in charge of Pasco County Schools. Let's create another equivalent. That would be the equivalent of having Donald Trump or somebody like him or Rudy Giuliani in charge of the American Medical Association. Utterly unqualified to make those decisions. So basically, Browning isn't even defending his kids at all. Now, Keep in mind, they are claiming, all right, that these kids are dangerous with no data, all right? Browning is saying that this program that allows the sheriff's office to access children's data illegally and harass these kids keeps schools safe. And so what the sheriff's office has been doing then, they track these kids down, they invade their homes, the parents don't know what's going on. Sometimes they lock these kids up in juvenile. Again, has the, kid, has the kids necessarily made, committed any crimes? No. A lot of times the major crime these kids commit is that they have low grades and low test scores. And you think, why would they go after that? Well, this goes deeper. Several years ago, and again, it goes back to George W. Bush, when the No Child Left Behind Act was first instituted, they introduced high-stakes testing. Now, before the No Child Left Behind Act happened, high-stakes testing still occurred, but it was viewed as one of several parameters from which to judge whether or not a school district was being effective. Okay, they looked at test scores. They also looked at grades. They looked at daily performance. They had qualified people evaluate how the teachers were teaching and so on. The test score was not the only parameter. After No Child Left Behind, in spite of what the feds say, the test score is what counts. And in schools that, in the way No Child Left Behind was, was instituted, even if you had a high-performing school or a high-performing school district, you had to show a certain amount of improvement every year. Now, this is how it gets truly ludicrous. Let's say you have an uh, extremely high-performing school or high-performing school district. And they're at the 98th percentile, or 99th, let's say 99th percentile. But the feds come in and say, well, according to No Child Left Behind, they have to go up five points. There's no five points to go. If they don't make it beyond the 100th percentile, which doesn't exist, then they're deemed unsatisfactory. The other thing in No Child Left Behind is that each, and I know this from teaching, each group of kids depending on the race, the academic level, whether or not they were remedial, whether or not they received special education services, whether or not they were second language learners who needed English as a second language course, whatever. They were divided up into in every school into groups or what they call cohorts of 10. 
it, under that law, it was distinctly possible for a group of children as small as 10 in any one school, that if those 10 kids underperformed, it could sink the whole school district, even if everyone else was a high performer. Now, there is another um, academician that I'm going to talk about in a little bit. Her name's Linda Darling Hammond, and she is considered an educational expert. And she is going to explain, her paper explains how the No Child Left Behind law and even the Obama era law after that had unintended negative consequences. I'm going to argue those consequences were not unintended. I'm going to argue that this was very intended to punish public schools so that monies could be siphoned off to private schools in the name of school choice. Because again, the very rich despise paying taxes into any public, any public uh, arena whatsoever. And this share is falling straight into it. So what basically has happened, like I said, they have been invading these kids. You know, they use grades and abuse histories to label school children as potential criminals. Um, and this is something that cannot be allowed, but it has been allowed. Um, and this was this predictive policing program. Before they started using it against school children, they, you know, one story from, uh, I think this is from Tech Dirt. Yeah, a publication called Tech Dirt, um, written by Tim Cushing. The headline is Florida Sheriff's Predictive Policy Program, Policing Program, I'm sorry is protecting residents from unkempt lawns, missing mailbox numbers. And so, you know, once again, they're talking about the Florida Sheriff in Pasco County and the defenders, what they call predictive policing. Now keep in mind, in the United States, according to our system of laws and the constitution, we cannot incarcerate, detain, or arrest people because they might commit a crime. But that's exactly what predictive policing does. And basically, this is data that cops used to harass people if basically they didn't like the look of your home, okay? It generates lists of people that they consider might break the law. Now, mind you, is this, is this going to happen in Richie Rich neighborhoods? I sincerely doubt it. But what these cops have done, according to Tector, quote, they swarm homes in the middle of the night, waking families and embarrassing people in front of their neighbors. They write tickets for missing mailbox numbers and overgrown grass saddling residents with court dates and court dates and fines. They come again and again, making arrests for any reason they can. One former deputy described the directive like this, quote, make their lives miserable until they move or sue, end quote. And this is what Tech Dirt wrote about the Pasco County's program. And they just, Tech Dirt described this one case. There was a 15-year-old boy on probation. He was being supervised by a probation officer again. He's still a juvenile. Kid was stealing motorized bikes. He was, quote, visited by deputies 21 times in six months. Then these deputies went to his mother's employer, his friend's house, and the gym he frequented. Past mistakes are the impetus for months or years of harassing by deputies thanks to the sheriff's software, end quote. The software that for this predictive policing program, this algorithm I spoke of earlier. Um, once again, this is something that is so unconstitutional, and it is a targeted harassment program. Another article, again, um, this was by Tech Dirt, and this was written a few days ago, really. 
quote, Florida headline said Florida Sheriff's intelligence-led policing effort is nothing more than a targeted harassment program, again, written by Tim Cushing, published June 11th. And again, this is this pre-crime algorithm targets its use. It's used as an excuse, according to this article, to, to harass people. Um, and again, it's the theme that it's about hassling people until they sue or move. And what better way to get people to move than harass their children? This is this takes a particular type of evil. You're not just harassing them because their grass is a little too high on their lawn. You're now you're attacking their children and threatening their their future. Uh, and according to this, and they say in violation of federal law, according to TechDirt, and it is true. Quote: The Pasco County Sheriff has been collecting information about students, dumping it into a spreadsheet, and declaring minors to be criminals in the making. Being declared a pre-criminal then subjects entire family to the same sort of harassment detailed above, with the supposed predicate being things like low grades, missed school days, and being a victim or witness of domestic violence, end quote. That's what's happening here. And it turns out, according to TechDirt, um, the program is being investigated now by the Biden Department of Education. The Pasco County Sheriff's Office is being sued, okay? Um, and it's way over way overdue. Um, NBC News spent time with one of the plaintiffs, Olivia Solon and Cyrus Farivar. And um, I'm sorry, let me backtrack. Olivia Solon and Cyrus Farivar of NBC News spent time with one of the plaintiffs. My mistake. Uh, and the plaintiff's name is Robert Jones. Jones moved his family to Gulf Harbors, Florida. He was trying to give his son a break from, you know, albeit some previous delinquency and new starting school. But five months after that, um, you know, and Robert Jones is an aerospace process auditor. And he thought he moved into this really nice neighborhood. Um, but then one day, seven or eight police cars showed up at his door. Not seven or eight police officers, seven or eight police cars. They had heard about his 16-year-old son, Bobby, that had some delinquency from Pinellas County, where they lived before. And they were explaining that the Pasco Sheriff's Office does things differently. Okay. Now, the kid had only been in his new school a week before this happened. And that was the beginning. Um, Bobby endured a month-long ordeal, then he was released. Um, the dad describes it as a horror story. Again, police, seven or eight police cars show up at the home. He said sometimes these cops showed up multiple times a day or in the middle of the night, and they were looking for Bobby, and they wanted to enter the home. If there was a crime in the neighborhood, Bobby was immediately the suspect. So... You know, they also described in a lawsuit that as many as 18 officers would show up at the home and they would, quote, banging on windows and yelling at his young daughters while they were hiding under the bed, end quote. This sounds like something out of Fallujah, okay? But this is what was this type of abuse, and it is abuse. They not only abused his 16-year-old son, they abused his younger daughters by terrifying them in their own homes, okay? So... Now we have the U.S. Department of Education. They are investigating this pre-crime program, again from TechDirt. They did a lot of good reporting here. 
And this program, this predictive policing nonsense, is really used to harass students. Okay, that's it, over and over again. Um, so the sheriff, Sheriff Nako, is claiming that um, they weren't trying to classify kids as pre-crime. But Nako got caught in his own mythology because analysts, um, well, he just said that, you know, the, the documentation said analysts should use these predictors to identify at-risk youth. In other words, pre to who, who, who will become criminals, pre-crime in other words. And, you know, I have one thing to say to Sheriff Nako and the State Commissioner of Education, Corcoran, and that is school-based professionals should handle this and mental health professionals, not the police. This is child abuse. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, this is something where this, basically they are subjecting these kids to citations, extra court appearances. Again, can you imagine having eight police cars in front of your house, shining spotlights, banging on your windows, screaming at your younger children and terrifying them? If this isn't brown shirt, neo-Nazi policing, I don't know what is. It's the beginning. And the Pasco County Sheriff, according to Tector, has said, openly stated that they're there to harass people into suing or moving. So why would they do this? This, this goes into the school to prison pipeline. And no child left behind really helped that along. So this is, Basically, the school to prison pipeline is this idea that you take kids that are undesirable, whether they're children of color, religious minorities, new immigrants, or in this instance, maybe they're white kids, but they just don't perform well on the test. You want to pressure them into basically dropping out as soon as possible, or you expel them as soon as you can, because that way their low test scores aren't on your, aren't on your data. And keep in mind, this was triggered by the No Child Left Behind Act. Now, keep in mind, the Obama administration's educational policies weren't a lot better. Okay, they, they were a continuation, basically, of No Child Left Behind. But this goes back to George W. Bush and the idea that you, you judge a school by test scores. Keep in mind, the Bush, the GOP, they have always been, they've always wanted to basically destroy public schools or reduce them to nothing. They want to take that tax money and they want to be able to fund their private schools. And test scores are one way to do it. You know, as a professional educator, I can tell you, it doesn't matter if you have the best kids in the world, but you cannot put an old head on young shoulders. Sometimes kids that do very well in school will crap out on a test sometimes for no other reason except for being childish because, you know, at the end of the day, they're kids. But this is really, the No Child Left Behind has provoked a lot of unintended negative consequences, which really harm the students. But the law says they want to help. And those consequences include a narrowed curriculum, which focuses on low-level skills that are real, really demanded by these high-stakes tests basically teaching the test. It also results in what they call, quote, inappropriate assessment of English language learners and students with special needs, end quote. And that's very true. I saw a lot of that. 
you know, you would think, okay, if these are kids that are in special ed and let's say they are intellectually disabled uh, and they have lower IQs, of course you don't expect them. If, if they are intellectually, say, the level of a six-year-old, but they're in eighth grade because of their chronological age, you wouldn't expect them to take the eighth grade test in order to predict whether they've made improvements. Well, guess what? In the early days of No Child Left Behind, that is exactly what happened. I remember seeing kids in special needs classes that were intellectually deficient, but they had enough awareness to know they couldn't do the test, and they were sitting there crying. They were so humiliated, and they, had, they were forced to sit there. Now they've adjusted things, so if you're really low-level, then you get an adjusted test, but you have to be so low level that basically if you can feed yourself and put on your own clothes, you're too high level to get the special test. Kids that are English language learners, in other words, new, new, new migrants. All right, picture you as an adult being told, okay, you're only gonna be allowed to stay here if you can pass this test. And let's say it's in, it's in Russian. But you don't know Russian. Of course, you're going to do poorly. Doesn't matter. That's what these kids were subjected to. And those scores were held against school districts. And so if you had a school district like St. Louis Public, we had, yes, a higher level of kids with special needs. One of the reasons correlated with the fact that we had certain zip codes at extremely high levels of lead poisoning rates. So these kids were damaged. And we were held, we were basically deemed as um, insufficient through very little fault of our own. That's what really happens. Um, these, the, and No Child Left Behind also included a strong incentive to exclude low-scoring students from school so they can achieve their test score targets. We saw this in New York City, where they did everything they could to make life hard, especially on high school students, so they would drop out or you found an excuse to expel them. That's what's really going on. This is what's happening. And we're gonna go back here and I'm gonna talk about what Linda Darling Hammond had to say about these particular, um, these particular programs. Give me a second here, folks, and a lot of information. I have to scroll to get to it. Kind of a difficult situation here. Now here, I'm just gonna go. Okay, so Linda Darling Hammond published a paper entitled Race, Inequality, and Educational Accountability, The Irony of No Child Left Behind. This was back in 07. And it ran in a journal titled Race, Ethnicity, and Education. Linda Darling Hammond is, is a professor at Stanford University. She is considered a very renowned expert in not only educational policy, but language learning, reading, and so on. And she goes into this, basically a lot of the points I just made came straight from the abstract of her paper as well as my own experience. And, you know, the one thing is she really thought that these particular consequences I just described were unintended. Uh, she also went in to say that the law fails to address problems of unequal educational resources. And that's something that is very true, and also a shortage of well-prepared teachers in high-need schools. We are one of probably one of the few nations in the world where the funding for schools, district by district, is tied 
to the um, property taxes and therefore the property evaluation of that district, which means that people that live in lower income communities will never have the same level of funding as those in a very affluent, you know, suburb. And it is unequal. It just is. It, it shouldn't be tied to that. But where I just I I agree with Professor Darlingham and on all of this, I do believe that No Child Left Behind, these high stakes tests do result in teaching the test, a narrow curriculum, um, inappropriate assessment of immigrant children who have limited English, in other words, English language learners, special ed children, as well as the incentive to basically push kids out, especially high schoolers, by either a premature expulsion or just making life so miserable for them that they leave. Um, I disagree with her on this idea that these consequences are unintended. I think they're very intended. As a teacher in the front lines for so many years, decades, I know they're intended. Okay, this is nothing new. I recall back, I had a great uncle, and when he was a child, you know, he Uncle Henry passed a few years ago, and uh, he was in elementary school. Like it wasn't, it was like 1910, something like that. And because he came from a Jewish family and he was dark skinned, the teachers assumed that he was mentally retarded. That was the old term they used back then. Uncle Henry went on to earn his PhD from Columbia University. He was obviously not mentally retarded. But the prejudice against communities of color and, and new immigrants was evident back then, and it still is. So now we have Sheriff Nako that once again, and I know it's a lot of information to take in because I'm trying to give you an overview. Sheriff Nako, using his political connections, especially to the abuse of Trump administration, to basically obtain confidential data on children, on minor children, which is totally, without their parents' knowledge and written consent, totally illegal. The state commissioner of education, who is not an educator, Mr. Corcoran, um, basically turns a, is fine with it. And then they use this information to basically attack a child and their family in their homes, swarming on their home, eight police cars, banging on their doors and windows, terrifying their younger children, pulling kids out of school, handcuffing them. There's stories of children as young as six being handcuffed. Tell me this isn't child abuse. I know that it is. And this is something where Sheriff Nako came to power through the GOP. He came to power through connections with Trump, through connections to Mar Senator Marco Rubio. No ifs, ands, or buts. Okay. When the Tampa Bay Times revealed that the Sheriff's Office, quote, uses confidential data to identify kids at risk of becoming future criminals, Here's what the superintendent of schools in Pasco County, Kurt Browning, said. He called him a great partner. Keep in mind, the Pasco County super, school superintendent is also unqualified for the position he holds. Okay? He defended the district's practice of sharing data 
with law enforcement saying it helps keep them safe, except this is illegal. It is, a, it is in total violation of the 1974 FERPA law. Okay, this, there's no guesswork here. Okay, so I'm not interested in Sheriff Nako's excuses at all. Now, there's been some developments since the first September investigation by the Tampa Bay Times, uh, and since basically the U.S. Department of Ed decided to investigate them. First of all, the Pasco, County, Pasco Sheriff's Office, as well as the school board of Pasco County, will not allow school resource officers access to confidential student data anymore. That includes grades and discipline stories and discipline history, excuse me. And the, that change came immediately after the Biden Department of Education opened an investigation into whether or not the school district violated federal law by sharing this data. And there's no question, the school district did violate the FERPA law. There were four people targeted by the Pasco Sheriff's Office. Um, they sued the agency with support of a national public interest law firm. Um, they claimed their constitutional rights were violated and called for an end to the sheriff's program. That was in March. Florida lawmakers have proposed two bills that would at least uh, reduce these policing tactics used by Sheriff Nako. One bill would limit how law enforcement targets and polices people who might commit crimes in the future. And here's the thing, that's not strong enough. It is unconstitutional to target people who might commit a crime. If you have probable cause, that's one thing, but you have to have some evidence to have probable cause. Otherwise, no, this pre-crime nonsense has to end. It's, it's, it's unconstitutional. And another bill would require school districts paying, quote, written consent to share student data with law enforcement. We don't need the Florida legislature to do that. That's already federal law. But a lot of parents don't know it. The FERPA law already protects them. But apparently all the attorneys at the Florida State Legislature just never heard of the FERPA law? I don't know. So this is what's happened because of these, you know, these um, stories. Okay. Even, this is really crazy, U.S. Rep. Matt Gates, as vile as he is, <laughs> was quoted in March saying that DeSantis should think about removing Pasco Sheriff. And Gates, okay, um, maybe Gates is trying to make himself look like a human being, I don't know. Again, we, in March, the Florida lawmakers took steps to limit school data sharing. We don't need that Florida state law. The FERPA law has already stated it is illegal. And the consequences for breaking the FERPA law is that the U.S. Department of Education will cite them and they will lose a boatload of money, period. That's it. As well as the parents have the right to sue the sheriff's department and the school district out of existence. And I hope they do. So this is what's been going on. And now I'm going to go down to my conclusion. There's, you know, a lot of stuff down here, okay? And we're going to go into it in more depth at another time. But, you know, keep in mind, this is really 
about abuse. So there's many questions that have to be answered regarding the actions of the Pasco Sheriff and the potential importing of these abusive methods to other locales. Now, the school to prison pipeline is very real and other districts are already finding excuses to push low performing students out. All right, Sheriff Pasco has basically made a new twist on this by openly sharing data and targeting kids and abusing them in their homes. Okay, and terrifying them. So here are a few of my questions. Were their students classified as special ed or in the evaluation referral process for special ed in the mix of students harassed and abused by the Pasco Sheriff's Department? If their data was shared with anyone without the express consent of their parents or guardians, then it was a FERPA violation. It may have also been a HIPAA violation because some kids with special needs have uh, concurrent medical conditions as well. If it's a HIPAA violation, when you violate a HIPAA law, that for the providers, that carries mandatory prison terms. So there's two possible laws that have been violated most likely. And FERPA, for your knowledge, stands for the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. Okay. Now, there's the FERPA law is very, very specific. Okay. It's basically saying any student who's um, under the age of 18 is protected. It was enacted in 1974. It protects the privacy of student education records. Parents and eligible students, and an eligible student is one that's age 18 or over that's attending school beyond the high school level, they have the following rights. They have a right to inspect, I'm just reading straight from the, the data, they have a right to inspect and review the student's education records maintained by, one, by the school. Schools are not required to provide copies of records unless it is impossible for parents or eligible students to review the original records like they live far away. Another right is they have the right to request, quote, that a school correct records that they believe to be inaccurate or misleading. If the school decides not to amend the records, parent or eligible student then has the right to a formal hearing. After the hearing of the school still decides not to amend the record, the parent or eligible student's right to place a statement with the record setting forth his or her view of the uncontested, about the contested information. The parent or the student has the right to halt the release of personally identifiable information and they have the right to obtain a copy of the institution's policy concerning access to educational records. I am sure that that did not happen. Penalties for misuse or improper disclosure of confidential information, and this is from the National Center for Education Statistics, the penalty for noncompliance with FERPA and the Protection of People Rights Amendment, PPRA, quote, can be withdrawal of U.S. Department of Education funds from the institute or agency that has violated the law. This applies to schools, school districts, and state education agencies. The Family Policy Compliance Office of the U.S. Department of Education charge of reviewing and investigating complaints seeks to promote voluntary compliance with the law. To date, findings of noncompliance have not resulted in such action. It goes on to say a third party who improperly discloses personally identifying well, information from student records can be prohibited from receiving access to records at the education agency or institution for at least five years. State laws on privacy may also apply penalties. A third party would apply to Sheriff Naco's office. So for any violations of FERPA, 
there will be another report later on. Suffice to say, the school resource officers, this is another thing I found. There was a report titled School Resource Officers, School Law Enforcement Unit, and the and FERPA, protecting, school pri protecting Student Privacy. Their school resource officers, which again are police officers, were given a 22-page explanation of FERPA law, which would imply that these police officers know that they might be in violation. Keep in mind, SROs, school resource officers, are not school personnel. At the end of the day, there are police officers who do not belong in our schools. Another question I have, were any of the students strip searched in public or manhandled as minors? If these actions would constitute criminal charges of child abuse and or child molestation, if committed by anyone else, then why aren't the police facing those charges? Period. Strip searching a minor is child molestation, which is handcuffing a minor, especially like a six-year-old baby, that's child abuse. I don't care if the police did it. It's still child abuse, period. Why didn't, another question, why didn't the school district superintendent protect the confidentiality rights of these minors as required by federal law? Then again, why is that superintendent, why is superintendent Browning not an actual educator? Why is someone who's utterly unqualified for the position of a school superintendent in that job? These are rhetorical questions. He's there because of political connections. And what I'm saying is he should not be there. Most states will not allow somebody to be a school superintendent who is not an educator and not properly qualified. Another question I have. Why were the police allowed to implement a model which allows police to harass and even arrest kids because they might commit a crime? What happened to constitutional rights? What happened to probable cause? Why were police allowed to search without a warrant and probable cause? Also, if a person claims another question, a person claims to be a professional counselor or social worker fraudulently, without the necessary licensure, they can be charged with felony fraud. Yet police, school resource officers make that claim frequently. And then they try to counsel troubled kids while denying the proper professionals access to their students. Why aren't these school resource officers criminally charged by fraud like anyone else? There were times when, yes, those of us that had the proper credentials were denied access to our students. I remember one particular time where one of my babies was handcuffed. She was 12. She was a big 12-year-old, but she was a 12. She had a lot of problems. And I was threatened with arrest because I was arguing with them. When I actually filed a complaint with the state, they, did, they didn't want to hear it. Another question. As a teacher from an impoverished urban district, I understand the fears of parents in the age of easy gun access and mass school shootings. Uh, mass school shootings. Police invading the schools is not the answer. While we need intervention for troubled students, that intervention must come from the properly licensed professionals in the areas of mental health and child development. Instead of cutting funding for licensed psychologists, counselors, social workers, and specially trained teachers, we're assigned brutal police school resource officers. Instead of providing alternative placements for difficult students to protect those difficult students and their possible victims, Funding was cut and we were forced to accept an ignorant school resource officer. Our children are subjected daily to metal detectors and frisking by school resource officers. Now children in affluent districts aren't. 
This is a humiliating process that protects no one. At two high schools in St. Louis City that have multiple metal detectors, school resource officers frisking any time of the day, there were deadly shootings. Turns out the kids just snuck in some guns through open basement windows. So the, the metal detectors and the cops did nothing to prevent that. The only thing these security procedures do to kids is psychologically subjugate them. And that is the entire point. Unless you are a child of affluence, you will be subjugated. Frankly, this pattern of abuse being doled out by police nationwide that now extends to our children and schools is not about protecting our kids. It's about premeditated psychological subjugation, and it begins at a young age. As teachers, we have the sacred privilege to impart knowledge and hopefully wisdom on our students. We have the equally sacred duty to protect our students from those who would hurt them. We are here to educate, advocate, and protect our children, not cooperate with their politically ordered subjugation. And that's my report. All right, guys, that is it for us tonight. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week. There will be more of things like this.